Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us this morning. I'm Pastor Jeff Strong. We are moving through a series on the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. It's a strange, powerful, provocative, evocative book, and we are moving through, uh, sometimes not always chapter by chapter, but in these latter stages, chapter by chapter, in order to better understand how to interpret and then apply this book. I want to remind you about our Give Big Give campaign, fundraising campaign that we're doing through the month of May. Really encourage you, if you haven't participated so far, to just look for an opportunity to give above and beyond your regular giving to one of the uh, ministries or missionaries that we have highlighted in our summit newsletter. Instructions on how to do that are on our Facebook page and in the newsletter as well. So there's only a little over a week left. So this is my uh, final encouragement, final push towards the big give. And uh, yeah, it's been really exciting to hear some of the stories of uh, people rising to the occasion. So we'll have a report on the uh, total giving once that happens, once we get to the end of the month. Let me open a prayer and then we'll move right into Revelation 15. God, I thank you for this revelation that for thousands of years, it has revealed your power and glory in an especially poignant way. And I pray that it would do its work this morning in us. This is a sobering text. This is a difficult text. This is an uncomfortable text. But it's a text that we need to pay attention to. So God, I would ask that by your spirit, you would uh, focus us and teach us. Sharpen us, refine us, prepare us through this text for your name's sake. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. Amen. Okay, so every movie or book, I mean, we're more accustomed to hearing about it in the context of a sporting event. But really, all so many big things in life have a two-minute warning, right? Whether you're talking about a sport or a book or just a personal challenge, whether it's officially announced, like in a hockey game or a football game, or it's just a dramatic pause that is there before the final push towards the culmination and climax of the story. We learn over time to recognize when we're, when we're in the final two minutes. And these two minutes are important because no matter what has transpired up to this moment, Everyone is now braced with a new level of urgency and focus because the two-minute warning marks the beginning of the end, right? The story is coming to a conclusion. The game is going to end. There's going to be a final whistle. Uh, the finish line is coming into view. The, the window to complete the comeback is shrinking. And now is the time to leave it all on the field. Now is the time to recognize that there are no margins for cruise control, right? It's go time. And when I read Revelation 15 this week, that was sort of the metaphor that jumped out at me. That we're kind of given, uh, we're reading about this two-minute warning that was given to John in these final few chapters. What's about to happen over chapter 16, 17, 18, and following are total and final. There's going to be no more cycles of judgment after these last 
seven bowls, which we'll read about. And chapter 15 is this somber pause where before this final push towards the climax of the story, we're witnessing a very ceremonial playing out of symbols and events. It's go time. The time to be living in cruise control is over. And Revelation 15 helps us to enter into that head and heart space. So let's read it together. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. For with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this, I looked and The heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Okay, I'd like to move through this text fairly quickly, highlight some of its key features and symbolisms, and then move right into how does this apply to our contemporary context? How do we respond to a text like this? So let's look at verse 1. Right, John says, I saw this, another great and awe-inspiring sign. Seven angels and the seven last plagues, and, and with them God's wrath is going to be completed. Last here doesn't necessarily mean last in a sequence of events, as if the seven plagues were three sets of seven happening in sequential historical order. Um, it could very well just as readily mean last in the series of visions. We're told that With these last seven plagues, God's wrath will be completed. That's a jugular word. It's a triggering word for a lot of people, God's wrath. But remember, scripturally, God's wrath is a principled but fierce opposition to that which is evil and sinful. Right? God is celebrated as being just and true. And so his wrath isn't a... um, out-of-control, unhinged emotional reaction. It is always done in and through his righteousness, his justice, and it's for a purpose. It says that God's wrath will be completed. And the word there is ateleste, which means, which is connected to the word telos, meaning its aim or its goal. God's wrath always has a purpose. 
So it's controlled. It's principled. It is fierce as we're going to discover, but it's not a, we, we, we want to be careful not to picture God's wrath like uh, a parent going off on a child and um, in, in a way that is unmitigated and uncaring and unloving and unjust, uh, allowing their emotions to take over and just to be filled with spite. God's wrath is always a principled opposition to that which is evil that destroys his creatures and destroys his image bearers. We see here a vision of those who have overcome the beast through their obedience. Even in the midst of suffering, those Christians who have continued to trust and obey God and not given themselves over to allegiance with political or world systems, uh, religious systems that are anti-Christ and anti-God, who have stayed faithful to God, they're, they're pictured here in a place of victory. These are those Christians uh, who the early parts of Revelation are written to, right? In the letters, that they are those who are promised the tree of life, protection from the second death. They're, they're promised hidden manna, authority over the nations, white garments, becoming a pillar in the temple of God. They're going to have the privilege of sitting and reigning with Christ on his throne. And then in verse 3, they break out in song. It's the song of Moses and the Lamb, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's a song that holds together the entire history of redemption, where God not only delivered Israel from physical bondage under Egypt, but eventually gave a Messiah through which they would be delivered from complete spiritual domination, from sin and evil, symbolized through Egypt or Babylon in the case of Revelation. This is a song of deliverance. And it shows us, I mean, this is one of the themes in Revelation. It's kind of hidden in plain sight, I, I think, for a lot of people. But take note of how often the saints are singing. This is why it's so important to sing in church. I don't think we're too far away from being able to regather again. And it's going to be great to sing in church and to celebrate what God has done can't be properly testified to by simply saying, hey, thanks, God, that's great. Words aren't enough. We have to involve our whole bodies, our imagination, our lungs, our voices, and sing and write new songs that celebrate the fact that God has delivered us and will deliver us through every trial and storm. And then John says, after this, I looked and the heavenly temple, temple, the tabernacle of testimony was opened. And John sees this heavenly temple open and what some commentators have called the angels of devastation emerge. And this temple is, is given a specific title, the uh, tabernacle of testimony, or in some translations, the tent of meeting. And this is to uh, remind us of Israel's journey in the wilderness, where they had the very presence of God centered. Uh, you know, they were built around the very presence of God during their sojourn, their traveling in the wilderness. And this picture emphasizes the fact that these plagues, these judgments come from God himself. They emerge from the presence of God. They're a holy and divine expression of unalterable opposition against evil, against those, who, against the beast, against the Antichrist and false Messiah forces in the world, 
against Satan and all the forces of evil and all those who align themselves with the satanic impulse to be their own gods, do what is right in their own eyes, reject and ignore the true and living God. Verse 6, out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes wrapped around their chest. This symbolism is important because what we're not seeing is these angels coming out in militaristic garb. Being dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes. These are symbols of what a priest would wear in the Old Testament. The angels are fulfilling a priestly function. And that's important because it means that the judgment that is about to happen isn't driven by militaristic bloodlust. It is a wrath that is pure and holy and just and righteous. As one commentator said, these last seven bold judgments aren't a bestial thing. They aren't evil incarnate driven by malicious passion. This judgment comes out of a pure and holy concern to do what is right and to bring a final close against evil. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Smoke is often accompanied with theophanies or manifestations of God's presence and power in the Old Testament. You can think about God's presence at Sinai in Exodus 19 or Israel's vision of God in his temple in Isaiah 6. Sorry, Isaiah's vision of God in his temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And again, the symbolism here is, is pretty clear. These judgments aren't just coming from angels. They are being done in and through and by God's will. These come from the heart of God. And while that might challenge us on certain levels, it should also give us comfort that God who sees all and knows all and is perfectly just in all of his ways He is the one who is executing this judgment. And what that means is the judgments that follow, when the saints see them, when you and I see these judgments of God, which will eventually befall those who have rejected and ignored God, what we won't say is, wow, that was really unfair. That was really out of line. These are not good and right and true judgments, God will actually see these judgments for how pure and how good they are. And we'll actually break out in song. We'll be able to say, God, your ways are just and right. I know that can sound strange to us, this side of eternal judgment. But the scripture makes it clear that these judgments are coming from the pure and perfect presence of God. They're being done by his will. And so we can trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right. So what do we do with a passage like this? I, like a lot of people, am very, I can feel it in my bones. Even as I read through this passage, even when I read it, 
the first time, there is a certain aversion to wanting to dwell and focus on the themes of judgment, wrath, condemnation, punishment. Some of us grew up in church contexts where there was an overemphasis of those themes. They actually weren't calibrated with other scriptural themes really, really well. That the themes of judgment, condemnation, wrath, punishment against sin were always the bottom line of who God is and what the message of the Bible is. And so there's this um, deep aversion and hesitancy to want to examine these themes. And I, and I totally get that. I can appreciate that. But for all the powerful, beautiful, hope-inspiring symbolism and themes that are, are absolutely found in Revelation, I think we've been exposed to many of them so far. Revelation does force us to confront seriously these themes through texts like this. Revelation 15 clearly places themes of judgment front and center. And part of our faith walk is learning to appreciate and celebrate the fullness of God's revelation in Scripture, especially in this book of Revelation. At the start of the book, remember, it says, blessed are those who study, who read aloud the words of this prophecy. There's a special blessing to those who take seriously the themes and symbols of this book. But why do these final chapters foreground wrath and judgment and punishment to what end well this is where i would circle back to that metaphor of a two-minute warning revelation 14 15 is the pause and the calm before the final judgment the final storm it notes the beginning of the end it is a gracious declaration from God to us collectively, but also to you and to me that we're in the final two minutes. And I mean that symbolically in the sense that we do not know when our time on earth will come to an end. There's going to be a final two minutes for all of human history as we know it before a final judgment. But we also don't know when we're in the final two minutes of our lives. And that should push us in one of two directions. The first is to be comforted by the fact that judgment against evil is coming. We really should read Revelation 15 and the verses that follow and all of the judgments in Revelation as a vindication of God's promise that he is going to punish and destroy evil and the forces of evil at work in the world. Because think about what the alternative would be. He's just going to let evil play out forever. You look around this world, you look at the, the conflict in the Middle East, the conflict that's in, in your own life, 
the strife across uh, economic strata, racial lines. I mean, just look look at the news. Is is God going to be good if He just continues to allow sinful, broken humanity to stumble forward perpetually? No. He says there is a day coming where I will judge the entire earth and I will put an end to evil. And that should give us comfort because what that means is the evil that you're experiencing in your life, if you are in Christ, the suffering that is real in your life is not forever. It doesn't have the final word. The last word of history and the last word of your life, if you are in Christ, doesn't belong to Satan, doesn't belong to Antichrist forces. It belongs to to the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus. And what we see in Revelation is Jesus above these fallen, earthly, worldly powers. And eventually what we'll get to is Jesus coming and smiting them with a word from his mouth. And that should give us comfort. Christ is sovereign in this age and in the age to come. Evil, yes, is real. Suffering, yes, is real and a part of our lives now, but it won't be that way forever. The message of Revelation is not that if you're a Christian, you'll always be protected from satanic forces and antichrist forces in the world. No. The message of Revelation is that those powers are real. They are against you, but you are in Christ and you are eternally secure. So trust and obey, hold fast, learn to draw comfort and strength from Christ and from the fellowship of the church and be faithful. Because redemption, capital R, is coming. So if you are in Christ, you should draw comfort and strength from the fact that a judgment against evil is coming. If you are not in Christ... If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, you should draw deep disquiet, deep discomfort. You should be shaken by the fact that judgment against evil is coming. Like I said, the last word of history is not Satan's. It's not Antichrist forces. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, those who are in Christ have nothing to fear as we move towards judgment day and the installation of a new heavens and new earth. But those who live in a way that reject and ignore God have much to fear. You cannot run from God forever. One commentator says, the angels' bowls are filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And as Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it means that through our life, though our life might end with its bang or its whimper, his life continues unaffected. The bomb goes up, the smoke clears, the dust dies down, but God is still there. Or alternatively, the busy world is hushed, the fever of life is over and our work is done. And we look forward to peace at last but God is still there to be reckoned with. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I warn you to whom you should fear. 
Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. The coming judgments that we're going to read about in Revelation 16 are prefaced with a scene from heaven, what we've read today. And and that reminds us that God is sovereign. Notice that none of the pictures of heaven are the angels or God scrambling. They don't know what to do as if these forces of evil are contending with them. The forces of evil are simply being allowed a certain measure of time. But judgment is coming. And the world's catastrophes, whether it's something like a COVID pandemic or the different crises or catastrophes that happen in your life, if you are not a Christian, they're designed to sober you up to the reality that a greater judgment is coming. They might not be directed towards you specifically, but they should function as a wake-up call, as a vindication of what God says throughout the New Testament, which is God is slow to anger. His desire is not that anyone would face devastation and be destroyed. He wants to gift eternal life to everyone. And so he's very patient. But that patience doesn't run on forever. And so when we read about this symbolic depiction pointing to a truth that judgment against evil is coming, If we are not in Christ, if we have not surrendered our lives to Jesus, these texts should serve as a wake-up call. And so our response, actually, whether we're in Christ or living in a way that rejects or ignores God, is actually the same. It's to repent. And that's a scriptural word that literally just means to change direction or to change one's mind. Instead of going on your own path, instead of building your life around my will be done, I turn and I say, no, I recognize Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth. That Jesus is the only savior and the true Lord. That he is the living God, that I need to change directions. I need to build my life around him and his priorities. And so if you have never repented, like in a total way, like capital R, like I give my life over to Jesus, you need to do that. You don't know when the final, most of us are not going to have the luxury of knowing when we're in the final two minutes of our own life. And the Bible says after death comes judgment, not a second chance. The second and third and 100 and 500 chances have already been offered to you up to this point in your life. God's patience doesn't extend forever. Today is the day of salvation. Not just to say a mere prayer, not just to kind of like, oh, superstition, cross my heart, hope to die, hope not to die. Uh, oh, oh God, uh, please save me. I give my life to you, Jesus. Ooh, sweet. That's not how it works. You can say that prayer and it can mean nothing. Because God doesn't save us through superstitious repetitions of ritualistic prayers. It's about a total surrender. So if you pray, God, I'm surrendering my will to you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I'm going to now live for you. And you mean it in your heart. 
then you will be saved. But don't think that a trite prayer that you prayed without real commitment will save you. Turn your life over to Christ. Begin to walk with Christ in newness of life and say, God, for as much time as I have left, for as much time as we have left, show me what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to fulfill your purposes. I want your will to be done, your kingdom to come in my life. Whether I'm in the final two minutes, 10 minutes, or by God's grace, maybe I even have decades left. I'm going to learn to serve you wholeheartedly. And that same call extends to you who are in Christ. Revelation 15 should shift us out of a casual kind of play Christianity, playing with our faith. We've got a lot of things in our life, a lot of competing interests, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of good things maybe, and and our faith in Jesus and our walk with Jesus is out here on the perimeter. No, it's got to be central. Revelation 15 should be a smelling salt that wake us up to the necessity of looking at our life and saying, if there's anything in my life that is not lining up with God and his kingdom, I need to get rid of it. It's go time. This is not the time to to cruise control. I don't know how much time I have left. I don't know how much time you have left. We don't know how much time we have left. So there has to be a sober gut check, that pregnant pause to say, I might be in the final two minutes. It doesn't mean I live those final two minutes recklessly. It means I live them focused. And I double down on my commitment to love God, love other people, to serve God and his kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then allow everything else to fall into place. And so that means that there's an attitude that has taken root in your life that is not aligned with Christ and his kingdom. you got to get rid of it. If there's a behavior, if there's a habit, if there's a mode of engagement that is actually not helping you grow deeper into spiritual maturity, you got to get rid of it. If there's an engagement that you should be doing that you're not, you need to take it up again. This is your two-minute warning. If you're a Christian, you are here to serve God. And that means going into all of the dimensions of your life and saying, how do I honor God in this sphere, in this sphere, in this sphere? doesn't just mean doing church things. It means saying, God, show me how to see all of my life as an arena through which I glorify you, through which I trust and obey you. And God, I'm sorry if I've just been kind of free floating, kind of like floating down the slow can, just letting the winds of and the currents of culture and whatever my friends seem to be doing and whatever, yeah, just kind of like it is what it is. And I've just been floating through my Christian journey over the last year, the last decade, maybe my life. And that stops now. I'm going to start every day committing my path to you and seeking to honor you in all things. Your will be done, God, not mine. It's time to get real with Jesus. It's time to get real in terms of his mission and supporting that mission and moving into that mission with a new and renewed heart. It's time to be focused. No more cruise control. 
Church, it is go time. So as you move into this new week, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless, guys. Have a great week.